I just didn't want to do that on the microphone. Actually, I did want to do it on the microphone, but I didn't. Okay. And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Kutschit Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf with a very special bottle of red wine on the Kutschit Podcast! We're back again. This is just like two podcasts in, in, in a month after no podcast for six weeks or something. So we're... Just two podcasts in, in two weekends. It's like a week apart. We did it last week. My God, we did it last week? Was that only a week ago? I must be getting old. My memory is going. Well, you are, but I mean, the, the thing is that the, the listener's cup runneth over. They have, a, having had a surfeit of us, now they have a surplus of us. Well, um, and we have many things to talk about, don't we? Yeah, we'll try to think about it in a minute now. 352 uh, let, me, let, let me start short. off with a piece of, piece of news, which is a, a, a very, an excellent writer has died who is not a great loss to the science fiction community. Okay, that doesn't now, sound kind, but, sorry, what? Well, it is because the author um, is Herman Wolk, okay, who yeah. won a Pulitzer Prize for the Kane Mutiny. Uh, he wrote War and Remembrance. He, two, he was a very good novelist, actually. Um, and some of his novels uh, hold up very well. And he wrote, actually, his last book at the age of 100. He wrote a memoir. He died. He was 103. But he wrote one science fiction book back in... I'm going to say it appeared in Collier's Magazine sometime in the 1950s, and I've never known how to pronounce the title, the Locomoki Papers or the Locomcom. It's something. It was, anyway. You had a while to ask him, Gary. Um, it's funny. I never ran into him in all 103 years. But it's, it's one of those t titles that could be, maybe it's supposed to sound Hawaii or something. It's about an astronaut that goes to the moon and he finds a subterranean civilization on the moon, and it's a cold wire satire, and it's awful. It's just pointless. <laughs> but it made me think of we, – we've talked about mainstream writers who write science fiction and get very snippy about it. Sure. And there's another group of mainstream writers who have tried their hand at science fiction and at some point wisely decided, eh, maybe not. Maybe that <laughs> didn't work out so well. Yeah. And, and so for every so, – so I don't think we should be spending any more time – dumping on people like Margaret Atwood or even on Ian McEwan who say bad things about science fiction while they're writing science fiction. I think we ought to respect those writers who figured out, I'll try it and I'd better give it up because it didn't work. John Updike wrote a science fiction novel called Toward the End of Time, yep. which is possibly the least of John Updike's novels. Paul Theroux, an excellent writer, wrote a science fiction novel called The Ozone, which the less said about the better. Um, <laughs> who else? There was. You got a list. Uh, You're checking it well, twice. That's almost it. Well, okay, Sin okay, but they're 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 the one off. Sinclair Lewis wrote "It Can't Happen Here," which not only was a pretty good science fiction novel, but is still relevant eighty years later. Um, so I think that there's a distinction to be made between people who uh, write science fiction while dissing it, and people who write science fiction and then at some point realize it's not for them. But I wonder why they choose why it, uh, to realize it's not for them. It's not just that the, the particular work may not be successful. There may have been other other reasons. I mean, consider a Herman Wouk, right, yeah. who was very, very, very successful. Enormously successful. Yeah. Swinging away to get into the tiny field of science fiction may not have been the biggest thing for him to be doing. 
I think it's probably something he wrote very early in his career, and then sure. later when he became Herman Woke, figured, oh, well, they'll publish anything I've done. Um, I think there was another thing going on, and this happened a lot in the 50s, uh, where you'd have a mainstream writer who'd get concerned about nuclear war, they'd get concerned about the Cold War, they'd get concerned about the rise of communism, and they would write um, sort of parables. Sure. And I don't think they ever thought of the science fiction. I don't, I don't think that... Herman Woke for a, for a minute back in the 50s or 60s. I think the book came out actually in 68 or something. I don't think he thought for a minute that there were subterranean societies on the moon, but he thought science fiction was just a toy he could play with to write a kind of political satire. And and, and that's almost not that different from the way people like Italo Calvino and even Stanislaw Lem began writing science fiction. They wrote it out of a sense of political satire. Well, sure. Uh there, there certainly is a sense where science fiction appears to be the best tool that a writer can use to talk about the future and about the problem, the, the extrapolation of the problems that we face today. I guess the question is, is it a bad thing that a mainstream writer uses the tool of science fiction? Is the, is the offense, if you like, that they reject it whilst they use it? Is it that they just don't do it well? And I think... It, Go, no, go ahead. Finish your and, question. And, and, and you know, really, is it a, is it the case that when it comes to using science, well, looking at, looking for tools to talk about the problems that are confronting us, and that you want to extrapolate, and that you want to mm-hmm. examine in detail in some kind of useful way, is science fiction actually the the only tool available for that? It's not, and uh, one of the one of the choices you could make, obviously, is writing historical fiction. I mean, sure. Howard Fast, another interesting example. Howard Fast uh, wrote a book of science fiction stories, uh, mm-hmm. most of which have been published, but he also wrote things like Spartacus. And to some extent, he wanted to make his political statement using historical fiction. So historical fiction is just as good a mechanism for, for getting at those issues than science fiction is. The difference is this, I think. The difference is I don't think a Herman Woke or a... Um, uh, or maybe even Don DeLillo, uh, because he has written history. I don't think any of these people would use historical fictions conventions as cavalierly as they use the conventions of science fiction. Sure. In other words, when a mainstream writer looks at another genre, looks at um, historical fiction, for example, or westerns for that matter, uh, because E.L. Doctorow wrote a western, they tend to take those forms seriously. Yeah. And I think that the problem is when they look at science fiction – not having read any of it probably or not having seen very many good science fiction movies, they don't realize that there are limits, there are conventions, there are rules that you have to play by. And and that's what's offensive. I, I don't take offense. There was a big kerfuffle over the last couple of weeks about Ian McEwan uh, and his new novel uh, saying it's not because he said really ill-informed things about science fiction. None of that has to do with whether his novel is any good or not. Sure. Um, when um, uh, it's, when you look at uh, Ishigura, Ishigura the, the Remains of the Day, or uh, um, or the other one, that's somebody that seemed to take the science – I don't know what his attitude was towards science fiction at all, but when he wrote those novels, he worked them out with the discipline a science fiction writer should use. All that says is that you don't need to show respect for science fiction in your public statements, but you ought to show respect for science fiction when you're writing it. Sure. Let me ask you a tangential question. When you set aside playing games and trickery, mm-hmm. do you think that sometimes 
the time travel story is the science fiction writer's way of accessing historical, using the, the tools of historical fiction. Well, yes, it can be that, and it certainly has been that. And also, but it's also the historical fiction writer's way of accessing science fiction, mm-hmm. uh, if, 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 if that's the, the way to do it. But yeah, I mean, uh, when Mark Twain wanted to write a satire on the idea of chivalry on King Arthur, he made a time travel story out of it. When Sprague de Camp wanted to write a pretty well-informed and well-researched uh, novel about uh, the late Roman Empire, um, he, he used science fiction to do that. And it was clear that he was somebody writing in the pulp era who, as far as I know, were there were not very many pulp markets for writing historical adventure fiction. There was a lot of, a lot of men's adventure fiction and that sort of thing. Um, but he was somebody who knew a lot about history. Avram Davidson knew a lot about history. Um, Ted Chang does enormous amounts of research in history when he's writing a story set in medieval Baghdad or so forth mm-hmm. and so on. So, yeah, I think science fiction is a way of getting at that, and it's always been a way of getting a contemporary viewpoint into a historical setting, which is what Connie Willis does over and over again. Um, Doomsday Book, for example. Of is, course. Uh, it's, and, and I've talked to Connie about this. You know, It is, it is an end-of-the-world novel. It's science fiction. And, and the way she thought of it as a science fiction novel, but not as a time travel novel, about a novel about the end of the world. Yeah. And which was actually happening to all these characters and her time travel device, which she had invented for Firewatch some years earlier, was basically a way of getting a contemporary viewpoint into that world. So it's somebody that the reader can identify with. Let me ask you a question, and it is extra super tangential to where we started, but that's Mm -hmm. us. So here we are, right? It's 2019, May of 2019, um, nearly 20 years into the new century. Connie Willis's career starts in the mid-1970s or late 1970s, something like that, I think, mm-hmm. if I recall correctly, somewhere around there. How do you think her, her body of work is holding up as we move into the 21st century? Uh, that's an interesting question. My impression is that... Um, it's it's holding up very well, but it's holding up partly because she has a body of readers. She's one of the limited number of science fiction writers who has developed a body of readers who are Connie Willis readers more than science fiction readers. Um, I'm under the impression that the Doomsday Book still affects people very deeply when they read it, and that's a book which is, what, 25 years old now or 30 years old maybe? Um, I think that the Firewatch stories uh, work very well. The problem when you get to uh, the, um, the 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 novels about the Blitz, um, All Clear and Blackout, Blackout, uh, the thing that keeps that from I think maintaining that level of readership is that those those are two very lo- it's actually one very long two volume novel, which is a lot to demand of people. Uh, but by and large, those novels do the same things that she was doing in Doomsday Watch, she was doing in, in Doomsday Book and, and Firewatch. Um, and I think the novels like uh, To Say Nothing of the Dog, her comic novels and her comic novellas, are just golden. I think yeah. they'll always have a readership. They'll have a readership the way Robert Benchley or James Thurber had a readership. I, um, I guess the, the reason that I ask is I, I look at a book like Crosstalk, which didn't seem to make the same splash that her books usually make. And it had me wondering, particularly since, as I just realized, because, hey, there's nothing like doing research in the background while you're talking to make it look as Uh though you know more than you do. 
mm-hmm. next December, so December of 2020, not that far away, will be the 50th anniversary of the start of her career. Really? Yes. I guess that's, what that tells me is that we have to rethink who the senior authors in the field are. Well, well surely we, we, we are doing that. I mean, surely anybody who, you know, who's of Connie Willis's or Stan Robinson's or whoever else's, uh, you know, age are now the senior writers. I mean, someone like Robert Silverberg, who is still with us, has effectively, although not officially, but effectively retired from writing. He hasn't written or published anything new in a while and is unlikely to write much more, although it would be welcome if he did. Mm-hmm. Um, but right, the, the writers who came along in the mid-70s and towards the late 70s, and now we're talking William Gibson, who's being honoured this weekend as a grand master uh-huh. of the SFWA, we're talking Kessel, we're talking Swanwick, we're talking Robinson, we're talking, you know, those, those writers who were brought in by, you know, who, who went through the ACE specials of the 1980s with Harry Carr, they mm-hmm. are the, the senior voices of the field now in many ways, if you like, the, 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 the aging gray eminences, uh, and there's a whole new generation of people who are hot. I mean, Laura Jemison is the William Gibson of the 2015s or something, you know. It could very well be. Uh, and, and the generation that we're speaking of now, the, the current senior – I don't want to think of them as a senior generation because, in a sense, they're the generation um, – they're the generation after the, the, the Joe Haldemans and the Robert Silverbergs and the Harlan Ellisons. Uh, and those were the generation after the Clarks and the Asimovs and the Bradburys. So from a generational point of view, and, and I guess Le Guin would be more or less of, of, of that Haldeman Silverberg generation, people who started their careers really in the mid-60s to I think you're, 70s. I think you're smushing things up. I think Bob's career goes back a chunk earlier than that. Oh, Bob started publishing when he was five, for heaven's I know. sake. I, I mean, mean, Bob's career goes back to the early 50s, yeah, whereas that's true. Le Guin's career doesn't start really till the mid-60s. That's yeah, that's true. Uh, Bob is almost of the generation of of Clark and Heinlein, but by that generation, I'm talking about the generation of people who started publishing in the early to mid forties. Oh, oh, sure. But I mean, see, when I when I look at um, Bob, Bob, Bob's of the Barry Malsberg generation, right? Yeah, they are that, and and the Daniel Keys, who, who you talk about often on the podcast, yeah. you know, the, that generation of mid fifties, post Second World War. Revivalists who were looking to uh, bring a, a quality of writing to the field that maybe it hadn't had before, a certain seriousness before, but they presage mm-hmm. they're actually genuinely of the generation before the new wave. They're not of the new wave at all. No, they're not of the new wave, really. That's that's it's true. But they some of them joined oh, in. Part of it. Oh, I mean, sure, sure. For example, Bob uh, Silverberg and Ellison clearly became. Avatars of the American New Wave. They wrote wonderfully sure. experimental and interesting and, and innovative stories. And to some extent, the one thing I will give Ellison some credit for, not just because of Dangerous Visions, but because of what Dangerous Visions represented, uh, it was also represented by editors like Frederick Pohl and C.O. Goldsmith, was that you can now write things you didn't think you could write five years ago. Mm. That was the message that all these editors were – and. For a couple, for some writers, that just was absolutely liberating. I mean, Silverberg's stuff in the late '60s and '70s is astonishing. When you read those things that he and Harlan Ellis were writing, entire issues of super science fiction in 1954, special monster issues where they had to write a different monster for each of three stories under three different pseudonyms apiece. 
Um, so yeah, it, it really was a kind of liberation. And the generation after that, which I would say would be the Le Guin, Haldeman, John Varley to some extent, um, they benefited from that. They came into a field in which those markets, those more literary markets, were already open. They'd been opened up by editors um, in the mid to late 60s. And the people yeah. coming into the market today are dealing with editors who are much more eclectic, much more, I would say, sophisticated, and have a great deal more freedom yeah. than editors did responding to some circulation manager of Ziff Davis, which all these people had to report to back then. I mean, I think it's important when you're trying to place Joe, because you've, you've actually, in conversation now, placed him in three different groups. I know I have. I'm doing that. Aren't actually, I? Let, let, let's pin him down. He didn't really publish anything until 1970. Right. That's when his career Hero. begins. And I honestly think for most of it, you could say that he's at best, and this is not critical of his body of work, which is important, is to the side of the new wave and is not of the new wave at all. No, I wouldn't think it's of the new wave. Uh, I don't think he was writing in that sense. But I think that the new wave, as it's defined traditionally, as it's defined as the thing that started was started mostly by Moorcock, was only one of a number of actual new waves that were going on. Mm. Um, and I, I think, for example, Haldeman is also somebody who came out of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, which is interesting because now you can, you know, you can go to the Iowa Writers Workshop and write science fiction at it, which you couldn't. In other words, he was—he came out of a literary tradition, a kind of, um, eh, I don't want to say anti-war tradition, but to some extent that was true. He was writing uh, you know, in the wake of novels like Catch-22. The other thing, he was writing a lot about art. Uh, this is just a footnote or a parenthesis, but it's something I've noticed before. If you look at a lot of Joe Haldeman's short fiction, which you and I did when we co-edited The Best of Joe Haldeman, he's actually written more stories about art and artists and music and that sort of thing than he has about war. Yeah. But everybody thinks of him as, 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 as you know, the, the, the Vietnam writer of science fiction, which is, which is fine. Uh, but I think one of the things that that story tells us is that you can't really chop people up into gener generations the way you used well, to be able to. Well, well if you ever were. I think there's always a certain degree. I mean, there's always going to be overflow and shifting around between generations. That's always mm. going to be the case. And I think it's no one would seriously argue anything to the contrary. However, you know, we, we do look at it we, as we try and talk about the conversation of the field. And we try and connect one mere area to the other and to understand how we got to things and to see whether this work is influenced by that work. We we try and uh, pigeonhole people. We try and take a Le Guin and make her a new wave writer yeah. and put her in with Wolf and put her in with Ellison and put her in with whoever else. And then you realize that eh, not all of them fit and some of them did and some of them didn't. And they didn't fit for their whole careers. They just fit for a while. And then they moved on to do something else because, you know, I don't know. I mean, would you say, for example, taking Le Guin as a simple example, that she was a new wave writer first? No, not at all. Okay. Uh, if you go back and look at the the Ace uh, books that she was publishing, I, but but again, are we talking about writers or are we talking about um, publishers? Are we talking about movements as to how things got published and where they got published? I don't as know. Opposed I, yeah. to I actually suspect we're talking about works. I suspect that if you look at things, it's more it's more useful, though more complicated and time consuming, to talk about movements in the history of the field in terms of works rather than writers. 
Well, I mean, if you look at writers, you have to look not only where they published, but what they have been read. Where do they, sure. where do they come from? Um, Joe Haldeman, for example, to use her for that matter, Le Guin as well. They 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 did read Heinlein. They 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 knew their way around classic science fiction. Uh, other writers, maybe not so much. One of the things I noticed, for example, uh, somebody who's often lumped into the new wave writers, who you and I have both been dealing with recently, was Ari Lafferty. Um, and he was older than Clifford Simak, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> he was the yes. oldest writer. He's by far the oldest writer in this uh, Library of America thing I've got coming. He gets lumped into a new wave writer, but... God knows he didn't read the same things anybody else did. He was he was completely of himself. There wasn't any other place to put him no. other than the new wave. No, and I think people some you you, know, you could have made you could have made an argument based on the fiction that Avram Davidson was a new wave writer. His fiction yes. was very bizarre, very literary, very uh, intellectual, and it had all the hallmarks of new wave fiction. But he didn't come out of that publishing industry sort of. Uh, structure that uh, that we call the new wave yeah i feel like we're walking around a subject that you had suggested we might discuss on this weekend's podcast mm. because we've been talking about influence we talked about people outside the field writing science fiction um and you'd suggested that we might ask the question of ourselves whether we felt that there was some kind of lineal connection some kind of reflection whatever else between the right, the work of that's being published uh, right now and that is being recognized mm. and honored right now and work that was published in the say 50s and 60s so say you know, go back about half a century roughly and mm. to see whether there's still a lineal throughput or whether there is a direct fresh start of sorts that starts in the last 10 years which is an interesting question, and would, we really need to talk to individual writers about this, I think. The question is, you know, is there really continuity in science fiction in the way that it was defined um, in, in most of the histories of science fiction? Now, just to be academic for a moment, a lot of the histories of science fiction, including recent ones by Roger, fairly recent ones by Roger Luckhurst and Adam Roberts, make an argument that science fiction is a kind of discontinuous genre. In other words, you look at a lot of 17th and 18th and 19th century works, which now look like science fiction, but it's not clear, for example, that there's a direct influence between Kepler's Somnium and, and Heinlein. In other words, the continuity of science fiction, when people write histories of it, usually begins with Vernon Wells and then Gernsback and then throughout the the whole astounding era that Alec Novella Lee talks about. Does that kind of continuity still exist? And that's that's the question you're asking, I think. I think you can always see linear connections because the field never the field never reduces simply to one writer or sm a small group of writers. Mm -hmm. So for a start, there is a type of fiction that was being written in the 1940s that is being written today. That I think is that's being true. refined. That I means it, it might have been refined. It might have been spit polished here and there. It might have wibbled and wobbled or whatever else. But at the end of the day, there is a kind of fiction that was being published in the pages of, of Astounding, that was in the first generation of hardcover books of the 1950s, that is being published by, by Bain, by Daw, by 
less so by mm-hmm. ace right now, but by orbit. I mean, I think you can certainly see that for all it's the evolution and change that's in, that's there, work like the Expanse, for example, you know, the the, the James S. A. Corey series, right. directly links back, and you can see that work by um, Jack McDevitt mm-hmm. directly links back. And the Neil Asher stuff goes back through a real linear heritage that you can track. Now, I, I guess you see, and this is me interpreting, part of what you're asking is, is that film on the top of the field, that, that or in the field, of work that we would call award-worthy connected? Okay, that's the interesting question, I suppose. But award-worthy is always a... A rather risky area to get into since things that looked award-worthy 10 years ago sometimes don't hold up so well now. Yeah, but, um, but I mean, it's, I it's, it's just as much of interest, isn't it? I mean, it's like it's award-worthy, it's a, it's a, it's of interest, stuff I like, stuff I'm reading. That's what you're talking about. And this is not a getting at you, but I mean, that's what the, in this conversation. Hmm. Because all of the, 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 the ebb and flow of the field conceptually is still kind of there. There's so much work being written now. So right. it's like, is that is that strata wherever it sits in 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 the frame of the field, is that you know, that 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 group that we would call award worthy, which tends to be work that which is seen as being quote unquote serious rather than light and entertaining, because we tend to as a as a culture equate seriousness with quality, uh-huh. whether that's true or not. Uh that's what we're talking about, isn't it? Well, we're talking about it, if we talk about it in two different senses, um, <coughs> one, the easiest one to talk about probably is themes. That is, themes recur in science fiction, uh, and they get treated in new ways by new generations who find new ways to use the themes. For example, uh, the Generation Starship theme, which is sure. which is a Heinlein theme. It's before Heinlein. It uh, survives with... Uh, the River Solomon novel from last year. There's a Sarah Pinska story, in, Sarah Pinska story in a new collection. So the Generation Starship is something which is usable for different generations with different interests and and in different ways of of, of 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 revealing what's what's behind that theme. Technique style. That's another thing. And again, I think you can find it's harder to find. It's harder mm-hmm. to find this kind of direct through line. But one of the novels, uh, actually. Since we did actually send, we sent one email to each other in preparing for this almost a week ago. Um, one of the novels which is up for a Nebula Award is Blackfish City. Now you can see in the technique of Blackfish City, the way it's narrated, the kind of fragmented narrative, the different points of view, uh, sort of semi-public points of view. You can see elements of um, the Kim Stanley Robinson, Robinson technique in um, some of his novels. What, New York twenty uh, one forty or in well, not New York twenty one forty so much as the uh, the the solar system novel the uh, I know the one that <laughs> had a date. Yes, I know. I know <laughs> yes, I know the one that we're both blanking on because we're old now. That one because we're old. Well, and you're which, looking, for me, looking at me, listeners. Gary is looking at me because we're connect, connected via via Skype, and he's looking at me to feed him the title of the book. I kid because you you're not. looking at right. bookshelves. Okay. It's twenty three twelve. Yeah. Okay, I think it's twenty three twelve. Um, yes, it it's, is. It's it's the only one one day thing. And, and Stan Robinson 
uh, was familiar with, with John Dos Passos, who invented this technique, uh, more or less invented the technique for his USA trilogy back in the 1920s. So there's a, and, and for that matter, that was not picked up directly by Stan Robinson. It was picked up directly by John Brunner. Mm-hmm. And Stand on Zanzibar and The Shockwave Rider and The Sheep Look Up are novels which I think have had more of a stylistic influence on science fiction in the last 50 years than a thematic influ- influence. Although, interestingly enough, Br- Brunner is sort of getting some attention again these days because so many of the issues he talked about in the 60s, including computer networks taking over your life and overpopulation, but what they used to call overpopulation is now basically um, degradation of the environment. It's, it's, it's all related. So to some extent, I think you can draw a through line from um, John Brunner to Kim Stanley Robinson to Sam Miller in terms of the way they chose to yeah. tell their stories. Um, that's the only technique I... Well, okay. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the historical epic, the kind of... Um, uh, large structure, which you didn't see a lot of in science fiction until you got Dune and that sort of thing. Uh, I think there are a lot of Dune-like novels around these days. And to yeah. some extent, um, some extent, I, th- I think you can see um, evidence of that, even in Nora Jemison's novels. And not because any of these novels are directly imitating others, but because every time somebody develops uh, a new innovative way of writing science fiction. It gives permission for a next generation of writers to write that. And so you have writers now who grew up not knowing what they couldn't do, not knowing what they weren't supposed to do. And a generation of editors who also grew up thinking science fiction can do a lot more than it used to do because you're not looking at three big magazine markets and and, yeah. and four hardback book markets anymore. That's true. Do you think that the editors of the 60s, that the writers of the 60s, would recognize in themselves the works that are on the 2019 Nebula ballot? I wish they would. My sense is that writers from the 60s uh, who are still around, that makes me sound really snotty because I'm of the 60s myself. But nevertheless, I, I don't think many of them read modern, modern science fiction, but I think they would recognize ideas. I think they would recognize uh, voices that they helped uh, liberate to some extent. I, I guess uh, I put that, that poorly. If you were to take, I mean, there are, what, six novels up for the Nebula Award tomorrow, uh-huh. which, which are presented yeah. this weekend. Uh, Blackfish City, The Calculating Stars by Mary Robert right. Cowell, R.F. Quang's The Poppy War, Naomi Novik's Spinning Silver, Rebecca Roanhorse's Trail of Lightning, and C.L. Polk's Witchmark. Now, if you were to take any of those books back in time and plonk them into 1969 in front of you know the writers of the day, would they recognize that stuff? And I, I would argue that they would recognize most of it. I would think they'd recognize it in a... In a befuddled way. I mean, the first thing to be said about the difference, because you, okay, we are looking, I'm looking at the 1969 Nebula Awards nominees as as you are. The first thing I think people would notice is that most of the nominees this year are fantasy novels, not science fiction. And Mm -hmm. in 1969, Black Easter by James Blish was the only fantasy novel on the ballot. Yeah. So 
to, to that extent, the, the, the shift has been toward fantasy. The other very noticeable shift is that in 1969, there was one woman Nebula nominee, sure. uh, Joanna Russin, and this year there is one male Nebula nominee. But on the other is, hand, thematically, I mean, there are satires on the 69 ballot. There are mm-hmm. work, works cons, you know, concerned with apocalypse, with, with the end times, if not necessarily climatic end times, then nuclear end times, or at least the breakdown of society. You have Do, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. Right. You've got Passmaster by Lafferty. You've got Picnic on Paradise by Russ alongside Stand on Zanzibar. Weirdly, none of which win, but, you know, I mean, the, it's odd that you know, the work that wins is not is maybe in retrospect the least of the of the works on the ballot. But thematically, they feel like they actually kind of line up. I mean, if anything, one or two of the works on the nineteen ballot, by comparison, seem a whisker lightweight. But then, actually, when you take them apart, Naomi Novik's fairy tale retelling and spinning spinning silver, mm-hmm. uh, Sam Miller's. And you know, tale of the Anthropocene and its dystopia that that comes with it, you know. Um, uh, Re- Rebecca Rowanhorse's Trail of Lightning, which is you know uh, the, the sort of tale that it is. They actually tie back, even in some ways. So does the the Polk. I mean, from what, to my reading, for all its qualities, the Cowl is more of a nostalgic sort of a work, and I don't detect nostalgia in the works that were be, being published. That that were being recognized in the '60s. No, I think that may be true. I'm not sure that. Um, I, I think to some extent, it, the, the Cowl is a more traditional science fiction novel than the others. But I think the other thing that we tend to overlook is when you when you look at a story like um, Spinning Silver, or uh, and, and you think, okay, this is a redaction of a fairy tale, uh, or you look at uh, the Poppy War, which is kind of an alternate history. Uh, both of these, I mean, Spinning Silver is actually very largely an historical novel. It's full of magic, but it's about, it's magic grounded in a kind of uh, Middle European history or Eastern European history that yeah. uh, that is very seriously treated. And and uh, and Quang's The Poppy War is also very seriously grounded in uh, Chinese history, uh, or at least a version of Chinese history. So to that extent, if you look at that and then you look at things like Lafferty's past master, which deals with a historical figure being brought into the future, there certainly is a kind of connection. I think you can draw a clear connection between things like Brunner's Stand on Zanzibar and Miller's Blackfish City sure. because they were novels written directly out of the, the, the novels which are directly directly address issues that are uh, crucial to and, and are widely discussed by readers today. Yeah. In other words, Blackfish City is upsetting to modern readers because it hits so many buttons of things we're concerned about in exactly yeah. the same way that Stand on Zanzibar upset people in 1969 because it touched so many buttons that they were worried about then. Yeah, What's frightening true. is that most of the things we were worried about in 1969 with Stand on Zanzibar are still there, <laughs> and Blackfish City makes them look worse than we thought they were. <laughs> yes, yes. Are we, is, is the real change that we're just more scared about the future than they were back then? Well, we're, we're in the future. They were scared about, and it's and they were right to be scared. <laughs> there does seem to be it. I mean, yeah, it's interesting. When I when you first raised this question, I thought, well, maybe there is a fresh start. I mean, I think there's a fresh slant, which is a different thing. I think issues which were being discussed in the late '60s and through the mm-hmm. '70s 
are central now where they were peripheral then, right? I think tail, you know, um, discussion of, of matters of, gen, of gender and sexuality were much more on the edge of the field in the late 60s, and now they're at the core of the field. I think that's I think that's I, I think point of view has uh, expanded in, in all kinds of healthy ways. One of the things that uh, is striking on the list of the 1960s uh, 1969 nominees is Picnic on Paradise. Picnic on Paradise was a deliberate attempt to go through a lot of tropes of sword and sorcery fiction and of science fiction. It's a, well, not just that, but the whole um, Adventures of Alex, which included Picnic on Paradise and the stories. She was systematically going through science fiction, which she knew very well, and rethinking it from a tough feminist perspective in a way that still seems fresh to me today. Uh, and it seems to me what she was doing in that novel is something we're seeing a lot of. We're taking a yeah. lot of the classic themes of science fiction and doing something which actually Scalzi put his finger on um, with, with red shirts. You take a familiar story and look at it from a different perspective, or you take a familiar theme in science fiction and look at it from the perspective of the disenfranchised or yeah. of the underclass or of women or of uh, – uh, non-binary people, uh, gay people. In other words, all those perspectives which have been implicit in the science fiction of the past are now ways of reinventing that science fiction. I think that sounds plausible. In other words, I think it's, I think it's uh, what, what it means from the point of view of science fiction is that all the stuff that we've had all those years um, is there, there are new stories to be told just from different points of view. Do you uh, think – okay – when we you first raised this, did you think you were going to come to a different conclusion than you just have? Probably, um, because what, what I was trying to think is: is there continuity in the sense of can you say, okay, there is a John Dos Passos thread in science fiction that runs uh, from Brunner to Robinson? <clears throat> mm. To some extent, that's that's a silly question because that's a technique which is available to any writer. It's not specific to science fiction. Um, visionary science fiction. I don't know if there's anything particularly like that today. The kind of thing that um, would be called science fantasy, I suppose, at one point. The kind of far future thing. That seems to be uh, the, the, the kind of Jack Vance, uh, Gene Wolfe, uh, you know, the world is so alien you can't tell if it's fantasy or science fiction. That seems to be a standard trope these days. Yeah. It's, it's 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 there's nothing particularly new about it. It's just a resource that's been given to younger writers. Do you think there's more nostalgia <clears throat> in the fiction that we publish? I don't see that. I see some of it. I think there's a market for that sort of thing. You talk about you mentioned Jack McDevitt, for example, uh, who writes uh, largely conventional science fiction and frequently does it very well. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are writers who also deal with um, a writer. We've not talked about, um, at least recently on the podcast, and I've not heard from lately, but Robert Charles Wilson, excellent novelist, excellent story writer. Um, most of his ideas were fundamentally old-fashioned science fiction ideas, but he looked at them from yeah. radically different perspectives. Um, and so nostalgia in the sense that, okay, let's deal with the classic themes of science fiction. We'll deal with time travel. We'll deal with aliens. We'll deal with uh, building artificial creatures or artificial intelligences or whatever. Um, 
but we're going to do it in a different way or from a different perspective. I mean, if if if, if classic science fiction was about um, no, that's, uh, that sentence is going to make no sense at all if I finish it, so I'm not going to finish it. <laughs> well, then you can abandon it then. Let me ask you this from okay, a different angle then. Let me ask you this. Do you think mm-hmm. that we do works like The Calculating Stars or Martha Wells' Artificial Condition mm-hmm. a disservice when we say that they appear to look somewhat nostalgic because of their subject matter? I think the subject matter is what makes it look nostalgic, that – the, the, the problem with the word nostalgia is that it can refer to either what a what a story is about on the surface. I'm thinking of, of, of Mary's uh, Mary Robinette's story, The Lady Astronaut of Mars, for example. Which these in many ways, to, right? Yeah, uh, which this is, uh, I think, a prequel to that. Um, and it's yeah, it's an old-fashioned idea from a new perspective, and that's the point I was making: is that. Uh, Nostalgia is not simply revisiting the past. It's to some extent making corrections on the past. It's making, uh, showing us, uh, corrections is the wrong word, showing us a different perspective on stories that we look at as familiar. Okay. I mean, what I like about the fiction of today and what I see in what I would consider to be the best of the fiction of 50 years ago Mm-hmm. is that it looked at the world around itself unflinch- unflinchingly and reflected it, that in itself as it projected into the future, if that construction makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I still see that. That's what, what makes it encouraging. I mean, yes, there's in- inclusiveness is a thing, and yes, there's mm-hmm. a broader cultural interest and a broader international interest, but those still are part of the, the, they are part of the project, not something else. Would you argue then that the, what you're calling nostalgia is it turning away from that unflinching look at the world and looking back toward uh, a more innocent time of science fiction? I think it depends at uh, what kind of story that you write. It's not the, um, the matter a uh, matter of the, if you like, the armature, the 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 stuff of the story. I mean, Mary's stuff gets look, you know, on this ballot looks nostalgic because it's about uh-huh. the astronaut program of a certain period, yeah. that kind of thing. Uh and yet the story itself is modern, is of our time. It's when you take a story and you tell an old style if, if you were to take the stuff of 50 science fiction and write uh. a 50 style science fiction story for that, for, the, for similar purposes, then it becomes nostalgic. So if that makes sense. So imagine if you're trying to tell a story that looks to restore an America of the 1950s, for example. Right? Uh-huh. That's, that's kind of slightly toxically nostalgic. Uh, it's different when you are using the stuff of nostalgia and you are reinventing it somewhat and you are looking to confront issues of today. I think that's in, in, in all fairness, I think that's in the, in the Cowell work and I think it's elsewhere. I think it's part of what makes the Martha Wells stories attractive. Mm-hmm. But, 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 but it's also, uh, there's a difference between celebrating nostalgia and Interrogating nostalgia, let's say. Um, one of the okay, one of everybody's favorite science fiction stories or science fiction movies, as it were, uh, is is who goes there and and the thing, and then John Carpenter's the thing, and then somebody else is the thing. Okay, that's something that is such a part of the DNA of most science fiction readers that when Peter Watts or Sam Miller decide to reinvent it and basically go back to the, the, the those movies. And find new things in them. 
that's using nostalgia to do something innovative, I think. It's, it's, it's plugging into our familiarity with the story to, in, in Sam Miller's case, to say, look, there are these other aspects to the story which you had not thought about, and there are ways in which the story leads into issues that are very contemporary, like in the case of the Sam Miller story, Things with Beards, AIDS. Um, so to some extent, it's using nostalgia in a, it seems to me, an innovative and edgy kind of way. Maybe, except I'm not sure that I would call any of those works nostalgic because what they do is they take a theme, a story from the past, and they retool it. And that's part of the evolution of the dialogue of our field and how we function. Nostalgia is longing to go back to the past. Well, I'm saying that they're using nostalgia, not that they are uh, exercising nostalgia. I mean, nostalgia in that sense was largely the... Uh, largely the purview of Ray Bradbury when he was writing. Mm. And Bradbury, I think to, de- to this day, remains one of the most influential writers stylistically in the field. I mean, the number of writers they talk to who grew up reading Bradbury is most of them. And yet nobody really wants to write stories about how great it was in Waukegan in 1924. Um, <laughs> I, think, I, I, I think there's a sense that that nostalgia has a toxic undercurrent to it. And I think wanting to explore that toxic undercurrent is a perfectly legitimate thing for writers to do. Now, the, the Waukegan stories were collected in Dandelion Wine? Was that what Dandelion the, Wine. And, yeah, and, yeah, and okay. it, it needed lots of later collections that had more Waukegan-like stories. Okay, in so let me ask you a question. If you want to talk about nostalgia and how it might function. Do you reckon mm-hmm. that you could write a Dandelion Wine about the Harlem of the 1970s. Oh, that's really interesting. Why would it... My first question is, why would that be remotely connected to science fiction or fantasy? Um, why would Waukegan be remotely connected to science fiction or fantasy? Good point. Um, and the only thing I can think of, uh, weirdly enough, that comes close to that would be a little bit of... Some, some of Victor Laval... Sure. Uh, there's a very New York base to that. It's not the 1960s, not Harlem of the 1970s, but there's there's clearly a nostalgic version of a version of New York, a nostalgic version of a version. That's really good. Okay, hang on. Um, but Can I just say, that, interject this, this thought, because it, it, it plays in. So mm-hmm. this last week or so, um, Charlie Jane Andrews and Annalene Newitz were talking about, mm-hmm. maybe a couple of weeks ago, about utopias and dystopias and the observation that mm-hmm. It, you know, one person's dystopia is another person's utopia. Sure. Right? Yeah. And so when we, t- when, when I talk about, as, as a, ra- not completely, but almost random example of Harlem in the 70s, it might have looked like somebody's, an unattractive time to somebody, but for somebody, it was the best time in their lives. And nostalgia is about going back to the best time of your life. Well, it's so, about a celebration of a time and place. It doesn't mean that it's an uncritical celebration of a time and place, I don't think. Um, and to some extent, that's the reason I, I mentioned the Victor Laval novel, because it is a celebration of New York to, to some extent, and of a particular uh, time. It doesn't mean it's, it, it, it's uncritical. It doesn't mean it's utopian. There's an argument to be made, and I've heard the argument made, that the only real utopian fiction that comes out of modern science fiction are things like uh, Bradbury's stories, where you basically let's reinvent small-town America on Mars. Um, I don't know if anybody's doing that anymore at all. I don't know if that kind of nostalgia 
is in any way highly visible in the field. There certainly have been stories, Ellen Clages, for example, has written some science fiction stories that are Bradbury-esque, that deal with kids, and that certainly seem to celebrate a certain place and time, but don't do so in a dewy-eyed manner, let's say. Sure, sure. Yeah, I don't know. In fact, some, some of the story, one of the things I've talked to Ellen about, and she's mentioned this uh, in terms of some of the stories, some of the stories that people read as sweet, nostalgic stories are some of her darker stories. Mm. And I think that's a problem also. Nostalgia is not only what happens in the fiction, it's the way we read fiction. Well, I guess what is the positive side of nostalgia in fiction? Is it that, in fact, you use, as maybe Ellen Clages does, the the feel of nostalgia as mm-hmm. the sugar coating on your pill as you go in to analyze something of greater substance? Um, I think sugar coating is probably too simplistic a way of looking at it. I, I, I think there's a... It's a, way, it's a way of getting past your defenses. Getting pa- you get past the reader's defenses with this kind of story and you have something within it that comes in and engages them in a way they wouldn't have expected. I think that's true, and I think that's... Uh, a Trojan that's horse. Technique. Well, uh, I go back to... Okay, what popped into my mind as you were talking about was um, actually Ellen's, I think, very first story, Time Gypsy, which is about time traveling back in 1950s San Francisco. Then she did, as she characteristically does, all kinds of research into the buildings that were there, then the the newspaper headlines that were there. Um, anybody who has, and, and, and I'm sure not very many of her readers would remember 1950s San Francisco because you have to be a certain age. But there was a sense of going back to this period of innocence, and then of course in the story discovering that this was a horrible place for women to be living <laughs> in. Yeah. So the nostalgia to that extent draws you in, and then and then you're sort of left questioning, why did I think that was such a good era after all? Well, well yes, yeah, certainly. I mean, if, if Waukegan, Illinois in the 1920s is an era of, of, of innocence and sweetness for Ray Bradbury, I yeah. wonder how many people who are actually in Waukegan in Illinois in the 1920s found it to do exactly the opposite. I'm hoping to find that out. Just as a quick parenthesis, I saw in a local newspaper here that sometime I think this coming fall, the city of Waukegan, is going to unveil its large statue of Ray Bradbury in one of its parks, which is supposedly a statue of Ray Bradbury sitting on a rocket ship while holding a book. I'm not sure how this is going to work out. <laughs> uh, the the other the other famous son of Waukegan is the comedian Jack Benny, and they have a statue of him, which I've seen in the park. Standing. Is he also holding a rocket, reading a book? No, he's not. He's 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 doing his smirk and and kind of holding his chin like he's puzzled by something, which was a characteristic move of Jack Benny. So, my guess is that there's a Waukegan of the 1920s uh, that is probably a complete nightmare. But the Bradbury never saw that. The other thing to keep out keep in mind about nostalgia is that um, I don't think it's based on adult memories. I think it's based on childhood. Bradbury was sure. had moved out of Waukegan by the time he was twelve. He was sure. you know, off to California, so he's he's just remembering childhood, and childhood for him happened to be Waukegan. So, uh, and and it's not as though there were not some dark things in Dandelion Wine, but 
there wasn't a sense of cultural oppression that I'm sure the poor people in Waukegan in the 20s must have felt. <laughs> it was an industrial suburb. It wasn't even a suburb then. It was a small yeah. town. And I don't think that when you look at a writer who has Bradbury-like moves in her prose, like Ellen Clages, I don't think she's looking back at um, her childhood with rose-colored glasses. And I don't think that's what I don't think that's how nostalgia works in science fiction. No. Now, that's nostalgia for items in your life. You were earlier talking about nostalgia for an earlier era of science fiction. Do yeah, we really I mean, want to have... I mean, I think that tends at, to be toxic myself, that, that, that thing. The nostalgia for an earlier kind of, of science fiction, when I see it done, and the classic example, the simple example is, let's write more Heinlein juveniles. Um... Which has been tried and, 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 and failed in many times. I mean, for, for, for one thing, the idea, there's, there was a bunch of these back in the sure. uh, 80s, I guess, and, and, and 90s. And they were, they, they were all based on the same idea that some smart aleck kid you know, gets sent to a mining colony in the asteroids and has to. And there, one of them, uh, which I probably could actually cite but won't, had a kid who hated school suddenly being in a space capsule where the computer failed and he had to do algebra on a piece of paper in order to figure out how to keep colliding from with the asteroid. The problem with that is it uses 1940s science <laughs> as, well as, as well as 1940s values. Yes, I mean, I guess there's that as well. It's like everybody wants to build a rocket ship on, in their backyard and go to the moon, right? And you're like, yeah, no. No, one, of the, one, of, one of the things that I think is the function of parody, and I, I really thought the Heinlein Juvenile was done in by Harry Harrison. Okay. I mean, once, once you've done Starship, and those, those were very funny novels. The Stainless they Steel had Rap all the, the, the Stainless Steel Rap. They, they showed enormous amounts of respect. At the same time, they showed enormous amounts of contempt for the stories they were based on, and they were very, very funny. Um, and, and to some extent, I, I've always thought that a good trenchant satire can nip in the bud about a bad trend. My best example. Yeah, yeah, continue. Yeah. It's just an, another parenthesis. My best example, because I was watching part of the end of it on um, television the other night, is Dr. Strangelove. Mm -hmm. If you go back through the 50s, fiction and movies, the nuclear anxiety things were just everywhere. Yeah. And suddenly, and then you had a movie called Fail Safe, which came out in 19... And suddenly, with Dr. Strangelove, it was so completely nihilistic, and it ends with the utter destruction of the world in a comical way that it left nobody else anything to say. And interestingly enough, by the mid-60s, that nuclear anxiety uh, trend had sort of begun to fade away. It's like, okay, yeah. once you just make fun of something viciously enough, People will shut up about it. No one's satirizing climate change, though, are they? That's no one's satirizing about that because it's it's hard to find anything comical in it. My, my, my epiphany for you, by the way, just for a second, is is the ultimate example of the kid building a rocket in his backyard in the 1950s, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos starting their own space programs? Um, it, it, it pretty much is billionaire kids in their backyards. Oh, that sounds interesting. This is how you act, what you actually have to have to do this, right? Well, one, well, no, one of the things that's interesting, if you go back and look at uh, Destination Moon in 1950 with a Woody Woodpecker cartoon being shown to a bunch of industrialists, the whole argument of that film, which was, in fact, Heinlein's argument, is that 
space exploration is going to be the business of private enterprise, not of governments. And yeah. that was simply the assumption made. Then, to some extent, we're we're coming back full circle on that as well. Um, I, I think to to go back to your climate change thing is when anxieties become out of hand, uh, they're subject to parody. I don't think we've built up a sufficient degree of anxiety about it. <laughs> I don't think we're scared enough yet. Right. And with that, we can maybe begin to segue out because here back in the real world, the nebulas are being presented this weekend. People are off at the nebula weekend. You used to go to those things, didn't you, Gary? I went to them when they were convenient to me. I mean, I, <laughs> nobody asked me. Nobody invites me. They were in Chicago for a couple of years. They were in Pittsburgh one year, and I was nearby. They're very pleasant weekends. You see lots of nice people. Uh, they're, I think, very interesting awards, and it's always interesting to compare them to the Hugo Awards, for example. Um, and it looks a strong list this year of the ones I've read. So good luck to everybody who's up. By the time this co- podcast has been out for 12 hours, people will know who the winners are. Sure, absolutely. And obviously, well, not obviously, three of the Nebula nominees are Hugo nominees as well. As well, yeah. Because Spinning Silver, Trail of Lightning, and The Calculating Stars are all on the Hugo ballot this year as well. And it's interesting that there's that degree of overlap. I went back and looked this up in 1969, too. Three of the Nebula Awards nominees were also Hugo nominees in 1969. Rite of Passage won, as you mentioned, it's not widely read anymore. Ari Lafferty's Past Master and Brunner's Stand on Zandivar are also Hugo nominees. So if, if, if there's been any evolution, it hasn't been an evolution of the nebulas shifting away from the Hugos. They still tend to look at the same. They come back to that, yeah. Yeah, came back to the same titles pretty much. And of course, the other thing here is today is, see, for you, it's still Friday afternoon, evening. Mm. For me, it's Saturday late morning. Uh, and it's World Whiskey Day here. That is going to help enormously because it is also Democracy Sausage Day. I was going to say World Whiskey Day on an election day sounds to me like a brilliant plan. I couldn't have planned it better. <laughs> uh, it's certainly, hopefully, it's going to. It's either going to make the evening once you know the polls close because, dear listener, if you weren't aware, it's, it's the Australian federal mm-hmm. election today. It's either going to make it a better evening or anesthetize the pain of a bad evening. I'm not really sure which. Well, or put another way, you'll either really enjoy your finest single malt or you will drink up all of your finest single malt in despair. Or well, I'll just be cleaning up all the cheap stuff, just lots and lots and lots. Or cleaning up all the cheap stuff, yeah, lots of, <laughs> Exactly right. <laughs> you know, uh, because that's sort of kind of how it is. It's like we're, we're, we're looking at the, the, the people who are willing to confront climate change as opposed to the climate change deniers and that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we, we have need of... Of, of good news, and you know, well, I mean, one of the things I was yeah. I was talking to our mutual friend Karen Warren, who was in Chicago a couple of weeks ago or last week, I guess. Uh, so I know something about what's going on with your election, and it's partly it's it's I don't want to say reassuring to know that you have idiot politicians in your country as well. Um, when I talk to people in the UK, whatever they say about my government, I can just say Brexit. And everybody in the world is you, you, look at it this way. At least you're not Brazil. Here's the smuggest worst thing I can say to you about this, Gary. <laughs> we have asshole politicians too. 
But uh, our political, our voting system is so much better than your voting system. It's ridiculous. It's so much better. I, I absolutely have no argument there at all. <laughs> you know, so much simpler. Look, look at it. I mean, it's voting day. It's Saturday morning. People are going out to the local primary schools and everywhere else. It's a five minute walk to go and vote. You can pick up a democracy sausage with the kids on the way home. You oh, know. you can do that here. Voting is my, my point is that you people actually do vote. Well, we have to. That's my point. We are the only English speaking country in the world with compulsory voting, and we feel fine. I envy that enormously. On the other hand, the compulsory voting has not prevented marginal lunatics from entering your political system. No, but it t- took real loopholes to get one there. I mean, you're talking about Fraser okay. Anning. And that's an idiot who got in on 19 votes. And he wasn't, he didn't actually get there on a vote. He got there on being appointed by his party because they were able to because of someone had been thrown okay. out of parliament and all sorts of weirdness. Didn't get over the poll. The joy of, I'll tell you this, the joy of compulsory voting, which I'm sure is anathema to the majority of, of Americans. Is I don't that think it, it is. That I think it, it's anathema. It flattens out, it flattens out the lunatic fringe. That's what it does. Yeah, exactly. Um, because Everybody has to. I mean, I mean, I think, I think right now of the eligible voting population, ninety-seven point eight percent of the population are on the the, the rolls, and they expect wow. somewhere around ninety-four percent of the population to vote. And in our current governmental system, we have a party in control who wants nothing but to prevent people from voting. Sure, and I guess the other side of that is, of course, nobody can deny that when we get objectionable candidates elected or people with objectionable views, you all kind of have to own it a bit. I mean, over there, a whole bunch of you can look at Donald Trump and whether you like him or not and go, I am connected to him or I am not and have nothing to do with him. Here, you got to get involved. Personally, I think it's better that you get involved, but it's going to be an interesting day. And, you know, who knows? If, if, if we can manage our schedules, we will be back next week talking about something science fictional. Instead of the Australian federal election, we'll be able to talk about who won the nebulas for a very short period of time. Yeah, um, we can do that. We'll be encouraging people to nominate for the World Fantasy Awards because they have to do that within the next 12 days. We, we, we could probably encourage people to go through site selection for the Hugos, but I still don't know why you need to do that. Um, since there's only one, one, Location yeah. up for it, so it's like whatever. Uh, and of course, to vote for the Hugos, which I have done, and which I think you have done. I have done. I I, I may go back again, and once again, we need to remind people: you can go in and change your votes. Um, I'm I've, I've actually already done that once. Uh, ah, who annoyed you? You can do this. Some, you can do this up until sometime in August. Well, no, there were a couple. No, of not categories sometime in August, Gary. I think I think it's it's on the Hugo website. It's, it's you can you can change your vote up until the beginning of August. I think. Yeah, we'll see. I may be wrong. Okay, people should go on the Hugo website and find out if I'm wrong. I think we've reached the point, Gary. Time to I think we're up. out of things to talk about. We're talking about your elections, which are only of uh, international interest to the rest of us. Are you going to go the way of the way of the rest of the Western democracies, or, or not? I hope not. We'll see. Okay. Well, until next week, I'll talk to you again. Until next week, this has been the Cood Street Podcast.